of that that I put in the assessment. And he ended up using my version. Um, and that is the version that went to Sund, who was the chief of police, um, and to Capitol Police leadership, warning them of what was going to happen. And so, what was the date on that? January 3rd. Okay. So, you know, when you write an intelligence product, too, there's like, who's the consumer, right? Who are you writing it for? So, is was the chief the ultimate consumer, or was it designed to go above that into political leadership? Uh, it was really designed for the chief of police and also the chief of the uniformed operations division because he would be the ones to dictate. Both of them would really be the ones to dictate what the operational plan would be, first and foremost, and two, like what the officer's posture should be on that day. And and who does those two chiefs, who do they answer to? Who's, who's next in their chain of command? So there's a Capitol Police board that consists of the Capitol Police, the House and Senate Sergeant at Arms, and the architect of the Capitol. So they're, his boss is essentially the police board. And then above that is would next in line would be like the Speaker of the House and then the majority leader in the Senate. The, ar- the, the architect. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I know the architect. Uh, I'm, what all I can see is somebody over there going. Well, your you, your line's not straight over here. Can you can you make them? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> they do do a lot with the security stuff, and if you Google it, the architect of the Capitol at the time um, was very very controversial, and he was fired a few months ago. So you can Google that and hear all about that. I'll do that right now. Well, if it's on the internet, Murph, it's got to be true. So get on. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> there, there was a lot of there was a lot of um, scandal there. So yeah. Well, as yeah, look, we're not above scandal. Um, so you know, we'll we'll talk about that. But let's let's get back to you though. So this goes January third. Um, when did when did it come out? Is that January sixth was going to be the day to have this rally? Did you know that before the third? Because I, I don't. You know, I'm thinking back in time. I don't remember exactly when all of this stuff came out. So. Do you, did you, do, can you tell us about when you thought that, when did they decide January 6th was the date? Well, January 6th, I believe that date is in the Constitution to certify the electoral votes. So um, that has been, that date's been on the books for a very, very long time. The fact that there would be a rally on January 6th, we found out like, December 17th, 18th, around that time frame. That's what I was asking about, because I know constitutionally they got to count the votes, the vice president sits there, et cetera. But that's what I'm saying. So the but the information about the rallies, you started getting it in about, you know, two weeks before, three weeks before, right? Yeah, about that time. And you got to remember, too, there was a rally, the second MAGA march on December 12th. So on December 12th, like we didn't know about the January 6th rally at that point. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't even planned. They weren't even starting to plan the January 6th rally until after the, the second MAGA rally on December 12th. Well, you know, and there's a, there's obviously a lot of discussion too, because I know that Christopher Ray has testified before the Senate. People are asking, "Hey, look, did you have human confidential human sources? Did you have this? Did you have that? Was the FBI collaborating with you guys to any great extent in terms of sharing intelligence or information that they had about what was going on?" They shared nothing with us other than we'll talk about the Norfolk memo in a second. But generally speaking, no, they didn't share any information. And leading up to January 6th, um, HCMA, which was Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency, which is part of like the D.C. government and D.C. police, they work closely with the D.C. police. Um, they were hosting uh, meetings for partners, including the Capitol Police. And I think there were nine meetings or so in the 
few days before January 6th, including on the morning of January 6th. And FBI was invited to all of those meetings. And I don't recall them ever saying anything on these meetings. And their position has always been, and in many ways still is, like, this is a First Amendment protected activity. We're not getting getting involved. We're not monitoring them. But there is there is a line there under the First Amendment, and people can cross that line where, you know, you don't have the same protections. Well, yeah, it's the right to peacefully, you know, assemble peacefully. And I think um, both sides, doesn't matter what, what letter you got behind your name, everybody's been guilty of not following the First Amendment, which just says your right to swing your fist ends where the other guy's nose begins. It's what a political science professor told me one time. But yeah, your right to protest ends when you cross from peaceful to non-peaceful, right? Right, exactly. Absolutely. So, because um, I got to think, though, you know, so if you had a dashboard there and the lights are starting to blink, so around January 3rd, how, how are these lights blinking for you? Are, are they solid red now? Are you, are, you know, for you, is it? Yeah, they're solid red. They are solid red. And I asked on, and this is in my testimony with the select committee, this was Tuesday, so this was the day before I had asked Chief Gallagher, I said, you know, is the National Guard coming? And I wasn't asking because I'm like, you know, like I was asking because I was worried about what was going to happen. And it was a very like informal conversation. He said in his testimony with the select committee, he didn't recall, which doesn't surprise me because it was like standing like in the hallway outside his office when we had this conversation and conversation lasted about 30 seconds. And he was like, oh, well, they're going to be coming to help with like traffic stops and road closures and things like that. And I wasn't asking the question because I was concerned about D.C. traffic. It was, if I was concerned about D.C. traffic, I wouldn't live in D.C. because <laughs> traffic's another issue. But so I was really concerned about what was going to happen. And I was not privy to any of the operational plans. So I sent up my assessment with the um, expectation that the warnings would be heated and they would prepare appropriately. And I had no reason to not trust Sund or Chad Thomas or anyone else in Capitol Police leadership because I thought, you know, they hired me. They hired me to be their assistant director of intelligence and they hired me to write these assessments and to make sure they were accurate to the best of my ability. And that's what I did. And so I didn't realize until after January 6th that they had a one and a half page operational plan, that they didn't cancel leave, that they didn't have the right equipment in place, that they hadn't called any of the neighboring jurisdictions to come in that day until until, you know, the riot was in full on going on right now. So. None of those things were done. And you bring up an answering point for a lot of people out there. If you're in a state, the governor is in control of the National Guard, but not in D.C. The D.C., the you know, and I have a friend of mine who's so actually in the National Guard Bureau. He's an officer over there. Um, the the D.C. National Guard reports basically directly to the president who 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 then um, delegates to the secretary of defense, who delegates to the secretary of the army. So to get the D.C. National Guard out is not something Muriel Bowser can do. It's that's that's something right that's got to go well up the chain to deploy the National Guard. Yeah, but National Guard aside, you know, the Capitol Police is part of the Council of Governments, and that includes all the neighboring jurisdictions in Virginia, Maryland, and he could have contacted them and asked them to be present on January 6th um, ahead of time, and he did not do that. So it was just another instance where they 
could have done something to be prepared and they chose not to. And we were, that's the other thing too, this council of government stupid. Then we look at the national capital region and what constitutes the NCR, you know, from a, from a safety standpoint and intelligence standpoint, because I know living here in Loudoun County, um, you know, we're far enough away, but close enough that, you know, stuff's going on. I mean, to your point, you do it for inaugurations. I know when inaugurations happen, they pull from a wide variety of agencies to come in, you know, for inauguration. Right. But also Secret Service is in charge of inauguration and planning the security for that, not the Capitol Police. Because it's a national, mm-hmm. I think it's called a national special security event or they have different levels yeah, of it now. Yeah, NSC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, the one thing my friends at the U.S. Marshal say, we're the only ones who can deputize people. So it's up to a friend of mine, Blair Deem, at one point had to sign all these those commission cards for one of the inaugurations. I think it was the 2013, uh, had to sign all the uh, commission cards for those people. And they were good for like 48 hours. You come in, you're here, then you go home. But uh, mm-hmm. so let's talk about this. But let, let's talk getting into that day. Um, so January 3rd, January 4th, January 5th, you've got your threat assessment up there. If somebody writes a one and a half page operational plan, it doesn't seem to me, and this is just me talking because um, I don't have inside knowledge of stuff. I only know what, you know, is out there. But I would just say if you well, let's ask you this. Let's back into it. Your threat assessment. How big of a product was that? It was lengthy. It was about um, 15 pages, of which two pages were sources. So it was lengthy. Part of what made it lengthy, and I do talk about this in the book because I would not have included it except Capitol Police asked me to include it, was like maps of like road closures and things like that because they were very concerned about that. So that took up like three pages of it. Um, and that really didn't necessarily need to be in there. So I agree with that criticism, but all the other stuff was like, yeah, but you know, but that's a weak, I'm sorry, that's a weak criticism. Cause what I'm looking at is mm-hmm. you've still got, you got 15 pages, even if it sources, you got to have source, but you got to source it. They got to know, okay, where does it come from? How much weight do I give it? But to have only a one and a half page operational plan held by the time you, you do the salutations and the introductions and, you know, and the, you know, you finish out the document, you basically wasted, you know, half the document on non-essential stuff. I can't believe that the operational plan was a page and a half. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a large police force. I mean, maybe not as large for what its mission is and what it needs to do, but it's still, there were about 1800 officers on staff on January 6th, not all of them were there at its height, only about 65% of them were on duty. And, you know, that's a lot of officers and there are a lot of different things to do. Not everyone's doing the same thing. Not everyone's being, you know, put in the same locations. And the capital is a huge area. I mean, you got to cover a lot of territory. Well, you know, even the, even your Intel assessment, having the road closure maps in there, I mean, now you've created a one-stop document where I can find what I need to know quickly. Rather than, okay, here's the ops plan, here's the intel assessment. Oh, where's the road closure? Uh, damn, we're, it's here somewhere, you know. Uh, so it's, I agree, that I think that's a terrible Only criticism. in D.C. do we have a discussion about, well, that should have been in the appendix. That should have been an addendum, not in the original. Oh, dude, you know, come on. What's important here? <laughs> <laughs> but the officers never received the intelligence assessment. And um, that's the and bad that- part. That is the bad part. It was supposed to, the way it was supposed to go is that I would send it up to my leadership, which I did. And then they were to send it down to the officer's leadership. So to the inspectors, the captains, the lieutenants, the sergeants. And then it was supposed to be briefed out at roll call. And some divisions did have it briefed out. Some did not. So some, many of the officers were pretty blindsided and were not aware of just how bad things were going to be because they never saw the assessment. So that's problematic. Also, at the time, the officers did not have phones. 
So even if I had distributed the assessment to them directly and I did not have the ability to send any messages to all the officers until after January 6th, um, but even if I had that option, they're not sitting at desks and they don't have phones. So like, how would they have gotten the information anyways? Well, and, the, and that gets to the point, right? If they have a phone, it's their personal one. So they're not linked into the same systems, you know, that an official phone would be. And, you know, people don't realize is that, but when you're out in the field, you know, coming from, uh, you know, I know Murph did the same thing for a while, same here, but when you're out in the field, the fact that technology has changed to where I can have all this information in my hand, it really is a game changer for me because I don't have to go run back to a phone or run back to a terminal somewhere. I, I can get everything I need in here. So, but did they have an established process though for getting, was this more of an ad hoc thing or did they have an established process for taking an intelligence product and, and verifying, making sure that it got distributed to the troops? They really didn't. They really didn't. Um, and that was one of the issues. And part of it goes back to what I said about the team. It just had a bad reputation and the products they produced were not of good quality and they weren't taken very seriously. I think if they had produced like good work beforehand, people would have um, wanted to read it. So a lot of their stuff was really viewed as like kind of like throwaway stuff. Like, okay, we have an assessment to say that we did it, but not because we would give much credence to what was in it. And that changed. I mean, that's not the standard that I work at. And that's not something that would be acceptable under my leadership. And so um, my assessment that I wrote, it was quite different than assessments that they had previously produced, you know, for the team. So, um, so where were you at on January 6th? So I was in the Capitol Police headquarters, um, which is next to the Dirksen Senate office building. So it is on Capitol grounds, but it's not in the Capitol building. Um, I did go in the morning up to the command center, which I recount in the book, but most of that time was sat in my office and my office overlooked the upper Senate office, uh, Senate park. So right by, um, right by the Dirksen and I could see like the Washington monument from my office place. It, it was a very nice view. A lot of, I don't think I ever want to sit in that office again, but <laughs> I had a nice view anyways. So as the crow flies, you know, not that they fly straight anymore, but from, from your office to where everything basically took place, a lot of the action, how close were you to that? About a block, maybe two blocks. Could you hear or see anything? I could see a lot of the protesters walking towards the building. So I was on the northeast side of the Capitol building. And um, actually, most of the officers were uh, arranged the way the Capitol. So the Capitol is uh, uh, just for people who aren't familiar with D.C. The Capitol is really the center of D.C. And on yeah, three of, course, of the sides, politicians will let you know everything revolves around them too, right? Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. But it is the <laughs> literal center of the city and all the roads in DC like spoke out of the Capitol. So there's, you know, North Capitol street and then East Capitol and South Capitol West. There is no West Capitol because the West side of the building is the national mall. And you see from the Capitol steps, you can see all the way to, you know, the Lincoln Memorial and the Washington monument and all that. That's the west side. Um, and people who on January 6th, they were over at the Ellipse, which is right by the White House, which is about 16 blocks away, um, and Freedom Plaza, which is right next to the Ellipse. And so they would be walking up the west side, down the mall, and up to the Capitol from there. 
I was on the Northeast side. The Northeast side is where you have the Supreme Court as well. So because we had in the previous two MAGA marches, there were um, rallies at the Supreme Court on the steps of the Supreme Court. And the Capitol Police usually handle a lot of the security for things that happen in front of the Supreme Court. They have their own police force, but it's quite small. So Capitol Police handles most of that. So the Capitol Police had really positioned most of their officers over there. But the reality is, is they were always going to be coming walking from the West and they didn't have as many officers there. And that was the first place where the protesters went. Well, but you brought up a good point, too. D.C. is is a cauldron of protests. I mean, it goes it, it crosses all administrations. Right. I mean, if this is one thing that they've learned to deal with. My fear is that uh, it's, uh, you know, um, you get complacent because, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Okay, it's another protest. We've done this before. Do you think that kind of factored into it is that a lot of people thought, yeah, we know there's going to be a protest, but hey, you know, we've handled these before. We got it. Yeah, I absolutely think that that contributed a lot to it. And I think it's a sense of arrogance, too. Like, we know how to handle this. We got this. We don't need anyone's help. And uh, I compare it in the book to the Challenger disaster and, like, the cultural elements that contributed to that failure. And a lot of it came down to arrogance, congressional pressure, um, not listening to the experts. All of those same ingredients were here on January 6th as they were with the Challenger disaster. Yeah, they got GoFe. I've read the whole business case on the Challenger disaster. It was GoFe. They had launch fever. We're going to launch, right? We got GoFever. We got to do this. And they they blew past the blinking lights that should have been the warning, the rubber seals, the temperature, the whole work. So, um, well, even in this case, the uh, uh, of January sixth, the Sergeant of Arms, when he was contacted, I read about he was concerned more about the optics, what it pers- what the what the public view would be if they brought in the National Guard. At that point, who gives a damn about the optics? It's about safety now. Yeah. And I will say one thing on this without getting too political. You know, um, a lot of people try to blame Nancy Pelosi, who was Speaker of the House at the time, as the one who was concerned about the optics because Paul Irving was the one who um, had testified about or is attributed to the comments about the optics. And he was on the House Sergeant at Arms. But fast forward to September 2021, there's going to be another protest on the Capitol, and it's from a far-right group and a far-right group that was advocating for the people who had been arrested on January 6th. And I went and I breached, uh, sorry, I went and briefed the Speaker of the House. And after I did my briefing and I said, these are the possibilities, this is what we're seeing, blah, 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 blah. She says, why didn't I get a briefing like this ahead of January 6th? And that made me think like, okay, maybe this was not her decision about about the National Guard. Maybe Paul Irving or someone else did not fully brief her on the seriousness of the situation. So if she did make that decision, was it an informed decision? Well, did, so that begs the question, did Chief Sund forward it on up the chain of command? I know the sergeant at arms had it. Who had it beyond that? I don't know. I know Schumer had it, but Schumer got it through his um, his security detail. I don't believe he got it through the Capitol Police directly or the Capitol Police leadership, I should say. 
Well, let's let's walk through the rest of this because we want to save some time at the end because we do want to talk yeah. about recommendations. So, um, I mean, I, you know, we don't want to go back and regurgitate for everybody because everybody's seen it, you know, ad nauseum. There's a lot of things that happened on January 6th. But from your view, as you watch things unfold, did things unfold the way that you had kind of written in your uh, report, in your uh, in intelligence assessment? Or were there some surprises? Were there some surprises for you? No, I don't think there were necessarily any surprises. Um, I knew it was going to be violent. Um, and I think I expressed that quite clearly to the leadership. Um, I, and it was not even, it wasn't even as like volume size, like the number of people, the rally in November was actually a little bit bigger. Um, but of course on January 6th, they were a lot more violent. So it kind of played out how I thought it was going to. And I say in the book too, when, when, you know, Ashley Babbitt got shot, when I heard that over the radio, I was surprised, but not surprised at the same time. Um, in, in my head, it was always a possibility that someone could die that day. I think it's, I think it's, even to this day, I still think it's surprising that not more people died that day. Yeah, it could have been much, much worse. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, well, let's walk through the rest of the day because I want to get into, you know, obviously what happens afterwards because a lot of, I mean, there's so much being written ab about the events on January 6th. But from your view, um, what what started transpiring during that day? I mean, because this is going to be, obviously at some point you go, damn, this is going to be a long day, right? So, you know, you're in for a long day. So does, how long of a day was it? What transpired and when did things finally wind down to where you kind of said, okay, you know, we're resolved at least at this point? Yeah, I mean, things probably started to wind down between like five and six o'clock at night when, but, but that by that time, you know, Arlington, Virginia, which is where I am, they had come in. They were, the, I think, the first police department to come in to try to help. Virginia State Police came in. And in all, there were, you know, over a thousand different officers who came in from other jurisdictions to help. And at that point, things were starting to get under control. And so, um, you know, that's when we saw things wind down. But there was still a lot to do uh, with, you know, everything that was going on. So I didn't leave the office until like 11, 1130-ish. And it was hard because I didn't have a car at the time. And there was a curfew in D.C. And so I wasn't sure, like, how I was going to get home. But I Are you going to, am I going to get arrested on the way to the metro? You know? <laughs> yeah. No, there was no metro. Metro was closed. The, the mayor closed it. So there was, like, no, like, I could walk, but that would have been a long walk in January. <laughs> um, and so I called a friend who had worked for the FBI. And no, on the way home, I did not be like, hey, way to leave me hanging. But, uh, uh, yeah, so he ended up giving me a ride home. But, and then I ended up in looking back because I had to go back and review my emails. I sent a lot of emails still that night. And then the next morning I started sending emails again, like very early in the morning. So I don't think I really slept much that night. Well, I don't think a lot of people but, did. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you a real quick hindsight before you get into that. Going back though, how much of a difference would have made would it have made if those thousand officers or the other help had been in there two hours earlier or three hours earlier or four hours earlier? You know, how much of a difference do you think from your vantage point would that have made? I think it would have made all the difference. I don't think the Capitol would have been breached if that had happened because they 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 didn't have the manpower. They didn't have the security apparatus in place. They were using bike racks like 
you can pick up, I can pick up a bike rack and move it. Like bike racks are not a defense. They are to keep people, um, you know, in line, like don't go over here, but if they want to go over there, it's pretty easy to hop over. Like locks yeah. keep honest people on us, you know, it's like if, but if you want to push back, push past it, you're going to do it. And that's what they did. Yeah. And they weren't even interlocking bike racks. So like anyone could have moved them and that's what happened. And so, you know, I think if they had had the manpower and they had prepared adequately, the the Capitol would have never been breached. It would have been chaotic. I think there would have still been fighting. I think it would have been, you know, a rough day regardless, but I don't think they would have gotten into the Capitol. So, um, as they say, shit starts to hit the fan. So how, how, how soon after January 6th did shit start to hit the fan? Because you, you know and I know, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, you don't have to agree with it, but I'm going to say we know how things work in D.C. CYA starts kicking in very quickly. Cover your ass, right? Writing memos. So, well, Absolutely. I said this, I did this, right? And so you've got an intelligence assessment that's dated January 3rd. Um, how are people responding to that now? So Sund got fired. He resigned, but he was asked to resign by the Speaker of the House um, on January 7th. And so he did. The chief of um, uniformed operations, he was put on leave and he was eventually um, let go as well. There are a few others who who were let go. Irving and um, Stanger, who is the, the Senate sergeant at arms, they both left uh, within days so there was that. And then, you know, in February, there were, there was a hearing the end of January. But in February, there was a hearing with Sund and Stenger and Irving and a few others. And that's when the finger pointing started. And that's when they started pointing at me. And I was like, wait a second. I, mean, I wrote the assessment that you didn't pay attention to. How, well, but both, don't, you're, don't, let's ahead. not bury the lead on that. So they point what, what they pointed the finger at you. What was what evidence or what were they saying to point their finger at you? What is it they're alleging that you did that they should have had had or been told about? You know, tell us about what the finger pointing was. So they're. Their uh, finger pointing was they said that it was an intelligence failure and that they did not have the intelligence ahead of time to plan appropriately, which, of course, is not true. And Sund also said that. So, you know, that that um, summary assessment that I did where I talked about, you know, Congress is the target and um, desperation and extremists and stuff. He said that that paragraph led to more questions than answers because there were too many qualifiers, like it may lead to a dangerous situation or a violent situation. And to that, I just say like, you know, I'm not clairvoyant. So I can tell you what the intelligence says, and I can make an assessment about what I think is going to happen. But I can't say, I can't dictate to you, like, these people are going to come and people are going to die and things like that. I can give you a, a sense of what what I think is going to happen, but I ultimately don't know. On January 3rd, I didn't know what was going to happen on January 6th, although I had a pretty good idea. And so if he had questions, he never asked. Well, me. he could have, see, that's my point. He could have asked, right? You could have said, well, this raised some questions, you know, but even then, even when you say it might do this, or here's some things that we've seen, what's your level of confidence? Give me an idea. You still develop courses of action. You still develop an operational plan that says, in the event that somebody goes here, we're going to need to move forces from here to here. And if somebody goes here, you know, uh, it, so I don't buy the excuse. That's just, you know, that's weak leadership uh, when you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and look, we, you said earlier, you don't want to get political. Murph and I, we don't, we're not talking politics here. What we're really talking is. It really gets down into the professionals who analyze the threat like you, looking at it. Where did it go? 
where did it get stopped at? You know, who did not who did not utilize it the way it should have been? And to me, a threat assessment should have been utilized to say, look, okay, this is we're starting to see the lights are blinking red. Well, in that case, guess what? To your point, hey, we're going to cancel some leaves. We're going to have people come in early on shifts. You know, um, we're, we're going to have an all hands on deck. We're going to put out a mutual aid request. You know, to the agencies, we want them on standby in case we need them. You know, we want to have them come in. You could have done all of those things very that that would have taken a couple memos and you would have had it done. The question is, why didn't they do it? Well, that's the million dollar question. They didn't. And they have not been forthright. They haven't demonstrated any sort of like um, self-reflection or uh, personal acceptance of their responsibility and their role in it. And, you know, Sun wrote a book and a good chunk of that book is about me and why he doesn't like me and why he thinks I failed. He even tries to deny that he was involved in the hiring of me. Like you had to sign off on the hiring memo saying that I was hired. So, especially at you know, an SCS level, you know, especially at that level, you, the, the chief is going to have a lot of, a, you know, a lot of say about who gets hired. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he had to sign off on it. And so, you know, like denial of like real basic things that are easy to discount. Uh, I, I think I do think that he thought that I wouldn't fight back and he thought that he could get away with scapegoating me and pinning the blame on me. And I would just be quiet and sit back and take it. And so well, and obviously, as of January 2nd, that's not the case. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, and on, even in September of 23, he testified before the uh, the House Subcommittee on Oversight, and he's, he's still arguing that intelligence officials were responsible for the Capitol attack and that they neglected to properly share warnings about the potential of the event becoming violent. So he's still not accepting any responsibility. When you're the, when you're the boss, you hold that responsibility. That's part of your job. That's why you're not the one doing the analysis. That's why you're not the one doing the research. You're the one that has to make the decision on how are we going to handle this? Yeah. And what he's, he's, he's glossing over there is that I sent up almost 70 pieces of raw intelligence to him into Capitol Police leadership that were very alarming pieces. And I have that in writing, like I have those emails. So for him to deny that he didn't know there's just, and I've, I've posted some of them on Twitter. You can check my Twitter account. Um, I, but the emails are there and he had it. I know I posted on Twitter the email where he acknowledges receipt of the assessment that I sent him. Hey, real quick. Uh, now, the Twitter, for now formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. But what? how can people find you on the service called X now or Twitter? As it's it used to be? at Julie Farnham. It's F-A-R-N-A-M. At Julie Farnham. Okay, so go check that out. So, so, um. When when did it when did you decide now nah, I got to set the record straight I mean because again this the, the finger pointing the CYA you know all of this stuff starts I guarantee you it started on January sixth you know and it bled over so what how did it affect you how did you know what was your life like then for the next few weeks you know what how did this affect you and when did you finally decide all right time out Skippy time time for a response here. Yeah, they pushed me too far. And then I decided, no. So um, right after January 6th, a few weeks after January 6th, Jack Donahue left the Capitol Police. And I recount like how that happened. There were some personal reasons. There were some other issues that happened within the Capitol Police, but he leaves. And so I become acting director 
And I am left with like this mess to clean up. I'm the one who has to implement all the recommendations that came out after January 6th, um, clean up the team. I ended up um, firing or otherwise pushing out six of my 11 analysts, uh, hired many, many more who are great and well-skilled and great analysts. Um, But that was very tumultuous um, because they were of course, very unhappy. Um, Writing performance improvement plans are not fun and they take a lot of work and a lot of effort. And I had to deal with that all myself. Putting somebody on a PIP. Well, talk talk about that for a second because it's not impossible, but it is very difficult to fire somebody uh, in the federal government. Yeah, you have to like suck, especially (laughs) to get fired in the federal government. Um, So yeah, I had four PIPs uh, and documenting all of that. And people, the, the analysts who were in, who were fired, they have gone to the media. So you can Google me and hear what they have to say, but they say that it was because of January 6th. It wasn't, it just takes a year to like get the documentation in place to be able to fire someone. And they sued too. And those cases were either dismissed or withdrawn with prejudice. So they couldn't refile them. And, um, they filed complaints with the IG and those were all dismissed too. And I was cleared on all of those. So they've definitely had, um, their due process and the, terminations held and they held because I was very systematic in documenting everything. Well, if you're and able so, to write intelligence reports and, you know, threat assessments, you, doing a PIP is really like an intelligence report, right? You got to yes. document things. What's your sources? You know, how did you yeah. come to this conclusion? Put everything in writing. Yes. Yeah. So I had to deal with all of that. Um, and like, and I did it and I did it well. And I really cleaned up the team and the team like is a viable team. And in late December of 2021, that's when those terminated employees started going to the media. They started writing um, members of Congress and like, Julie's a horrible person. Um, And so ultimately, I did not get the director job permanently after all I had done. And I knew it was for political reasons. And actually, the assistant chief, when she gave me that news, she told me it was for political reasons. Um, and, uh, I was understandably upset and I went home that night and started writing a book. Um, (laughs) so, uh, yeah, like it, it was actually in the long run, it was a relief and, and, uh, it was a weight lifted off of me because then it wasn't all my responsibility anymore. And I was really vested in like making sure that the team did do well and like did, they did have a viable viable intelligence division because I wanted like, it's more than just the Capitol police and me. This means like, because that, because of that failure on January 6th, like what did that do to our country? It's more than just a federal agency not doing what they needed to do. They harmed America. They harmed our democracy. And so for me, it's bigger than that. And so, and I ended up staying, I just left in May of 2023. So I stayed almost three years. So I put my time in, I cleaned up what I needed to do, even though like internally, like I was angry and I was unhappy with the decisions that were made in the way that I was treated with the Capitol police. But, um, but that's also why I wanted to tell my story because people were telling my story for me and they were telling it in a way to paint themselves in the best light. And that wasn't necessarily the truth. You know, um, 
for our listeners here, the significance of, of this is the fact that it was almost 200 years ago that our capital was breached before January 6th of, of 2020, 2021. That's, it's unbelievably significant. And then when you look in the culture of law enforcement, the gun toters are always the ones that primarily are in charge. That included DEA and Intel kind of fell under them. And there's a lot of animosity between the two. What I found, and, and you know, especially after running a couple offices of primarily Intel analysts, the best team, the best investigative team you can ever come up with is a gun toter who knows his job and realizes what the significance is of an anal- Intel analyst, and they work together in an equal partnership. Just because you're carrying a gun does not make you any more important than the, than the Intel analyst. And quite honestly, the analyst typically is just a little bit smarter than the gun toter. They have specific skills like you're talking about with with researching open source and all the different databases you have access to that, hell, I don't even know what the acronyms mean. But given that information and based on the investigation, there's no better investigative team than putting an analyst and an agent or an analyst and a police officer together. So I know for, and I, I read your book. Thank you very much for providing us with an advanced copy. Uh, I think it came from your publicist, Lisa, but with your authorization. And I read in the book how you suffered through that. And and I'll be quite honest with you. Before I became an SES, I wasn't too sympathetic. I did realize the significance and the importance of an Intel analyst. But then when you're running an office full of analysts, and I see how other agencies, I thought it was just our agency treated our analysts as second-class citizens. But what I saw from the FBI, I mean, I felt so sorry for their analysts. I mean, they berated them in front of other people, and they're – these are GS-14s berating a GS-13. You know, it, it was just, it was uh, shocking to see that. And I thought, well, the Bureau's got to be the worst when it comes to handling their analysts. But after reading your book, I think the Capitol Police might have taken the first spot here. It's a shame that it happens like that. It's a shame that people get a new title, get a promotion, and all of a sudden they think they're more important than everybody else. That promotion and title just gives you different responsibilities. And you know what your first responsibility is? Is to make sure the people under you have the training and the resources, all the materials they need so they can adequately do their job. And I'll get off my high horse now because it just pisses me off to, to, you know, I've seen it firsthand and then I read about it in your book and it just, we can evolve from this You're crap. a little vague there, Murph. You want to be a little bit more clear about it? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the, the definition of, of lunacy is continually to do things the same way and expect a different outcome? Results. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jeez, come on, everybody. Well, let, let's talk about this in the, in the time we have left. You Because you keep mentioning, let, let's talk about your 10 takeaways. Um, so let, let's talk about those and what you've learned. Because, look, after January 6th, and you're toughing it out for three years, man, you've got to have, uh, you know, the, um, the, the battle scars, you know to go through this. So let's talk about when you looked at this, what are the 10 um, conclusions, you know, the 10 recommendations you came up with that you said, this is how we should be doing things. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, none of the recommendations are directed at the Capitol police specifically. Um, It's not, I did not write this book as like an ax to grind with the Capitol police. Like I had, I told my story and I told it honestly Um, but it wasn't meant to harm the Capitol Police. If anything, I hope that it does more to give them like the opportunity to reflect on what their culture is and what they're doing and how they're treating their employees so that they can do better in the future. 
But so for the recommendations, recommendations, um, recommendation one talks about creating guidelines to ensure consistent collection and reporting of extremist activities and making sure that that collection doesn't infringe on privacy and civil liberty rights. Um, Because I think that's important. And I think that's why we haven't collected on domestic extremists, because people are always afraid of like privacy and civil liberties. But it's something that we need to look at because it is probably the biggest threat right now that we have in this country. We and just I got to see how they're going to start it now. (laughs) (laughs) There are encrypted communication devices and websites that if these people don't want their opinion known, they can use and probably do. But when they put it out on public social media, where is the expectation of privacy? I know. I agree with you. I agree with you. All three of us took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, which says, you know, we have have certain rights to privacy. But when you put it out there on a public site, it's just, it's different. It's no longer an expectation of privacy. I would agree with you. Okay, sorry. Um, I'll let you go now. (laughs) Recommendation two is creating stiffer penalties for those who are violent at protests. Because I do feel strongly that people need to have the right to protest and to demonstrate. I mean, it is in the Constitution for a reason. But when people cross that line, as we talked about earlier, to becoming violent and becoming destructive, that that is not right. And people should feel safe when they're demonstrating. So I think there should be enhanced penalties when they do something like that. Um, third one is to work with other governments to fight hate and track extremism and designate more groups as terrorist organizations. So where I think things have flipped in the United States over the past few years, um, maybe five, six, seven years, is it's gone from like foreign terrorists being and foreign terrorist organizations being the primary threat to domestic. And a lot and we are exporting our hate. So Groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, they are designated as terrorist organizations in other uh, countries. And we need to do more to share information um, on those types of groups. And then we need to do more to designate domestic groups as extremist groups. And then four is um, Congress and the White House need to stop politicizing government agencies to keep Americans safe. And, you know, we saw that with the Capitol Police, which we've talked about here, but also like Department of Justice and the FBI and like that um, committee in Congress now in the House on the weaponization of government. Like that is what they're doing. Like they're weaponizing and pressuring agencies to do their bidding for them. And that's not right. I mean, of course, Congress needs to have oversight and needs to hold agencies accountable, but they need to let them do their mission. And I think that's a lot of the issues that we've seen with um, Department of Homeland Security Intelligence and Analysis Office is that they have been so politicized that they aren't effective in doing their job. And that's that's a problem. And that that contributes to us being less safe as a country. Well, and let me talk about optics again. Well, but but that's the problem. The problem is anytime you say, here's what I want you to find, then it's no longer an intelligence analysis. It's a conclusion, and you want somebody to support your conclusion. That's that's the problem we get into. Right, left, in the middle, doesn't matter. You cannot say, here's what I want you to find, as opposed to tell me, what did you find? Yeah, exactly. You're exactly right. 
And then recommendation five is um, the one that we sort of talked about, about regulating social media content and creating mandatory reporting. The mandatory reporting one, I think, is really important because in all the time that I was in the Capitol Police, and I think I added it up, it's somewhere around 20,000 threats that came in under my time at the Capitol Police. Not one social media company sent a threat over to me. And sometimes they pulled them down. Like I would get an alert that there was a threat and then I would go to look at it and they would already be removed from the, the platform. But that means that they removed it knowing that it was a violation, but they never did their due diligence to like send it over and their duty to warn to send it over to whatever agency needed to have it. And so that's problematic. And like we already said, you know, if they're, they're documenting something that is illegal online, that's not creating like a new set of laws. It's just reporting something that would be illegal no matter where it's done. And so the, the social media companies need to do that. They need to get better at that. And then if they refuse, then maybe they don't need to operate here in the United States. I mean, we're going to ban potentially TikTok. Like, why not ban Telegram, too? Because there's lots of, like, bad, bad stuff that's going on there. Agreed. And then six is what I just talked about, barring noncompliant social media platforms platforms from operating in the U.S. And then seven is hold accountable politicians who support hate and conspiracies. Thank you. Um, I know that's a little bit controversial, but really I think part of the reason why domestic extremism has flourished so much over the past few years is because they've been given a platform and they've been given a voice and they've made it acceptable. And they've gone from fringe to mainstream because they've been allowed to go that way. And they've been given the opportunity to spread their hate. And that's that's detrimental to, to our society. And then eight is enact legislation targeting domestic extremism. Um, and I talk about how, you know, there was uh, legislation that um, only one Republican voted for, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act in 2022. And that's problematic. Um, the reason for voting against it was, well, we already have these tools and these agencies already have this. But if they do, they're not using it. And we need to empower them to use it to target domestic extremists. It's just about, like you talked about, accountability. Exactly, exactly. And then nine, we talked about a little bit already, is about starting a national campaign to raise awareness about mobilization to violence. And then the final one is about education and educating children and making them resilient to extremist ideology. You know, I even sent Morgan a, a text this morning before your interview that these recommendations, we need to highlight them because I agree with all 10 of them. Well, and I didn't get your text because I was I was being punished by my Peloton. I had taken a couple weeks easy, and then I hit it hard today. The intensity ride, and boy, by the time I saw that I saw that come across, I'm like, okay, I can't breathe. I can barely breathe. <laughs> it was. No, it you know, was, this is uh, this is um, uh, so much of this is just kind of common sense when you have more information. It's you, you've you've collected ten which in most cases are does. I mean, there should be, duh, well, we should be doing that, but that's the government, right? We should be sharing information, duh. Well, we weren't mm -hmm. doing it before 9-11 the way we should have, right? We should be sharing intelligence. You know, uh, so much of this stuff is just proverbial common sense. Mm -hmm. But someone has to say it out loud and no one was, so I had to.
everybody else was trying to to gather their horses and their wagons around themselves to protect themselves. I mean, hell, you make a mistake, own up to the mistake, let's learn from the mistake, and don't make the same damn mistake again. Well, I used to used to talk to a couple guys. I, I said, hey, I did have one guy. I said, hey, stand here for a second. Hold your arms down at your side. I said, you know, your right arm's longer than your left arm. You know why? Because you're spending all your time patting yourself on the back, you know? <laughs> Um, whereas look at how good I am. And then the finger pointing, you know, I saw that, I saw that, uh, in full force, uh, during this work, doing this work at justice, you try to get four to five agencies in there talking about sharing information. You want to see a food fight. That's when the food fight gets going, but Hey, look, um, so let's talk about it. Uh, yesterday was pub day. We're recording this on the third. So yesterday was pub day, so January 2nd. So, um, who, tell us about your pub, who published your book for you? Who, who did you get to publish? It's called IG Publishing, and they are based out of New York. They're a small um, publishing company, but uh, they are mighty, and uh, they have been really supportive and really helpful, and I'm really glad that my book found a home with them. And I saw on your Twitter, because I did pull that up, we know we do our due diligence, you gave, you gave, the other thing too, you gave credit to a lawyer for helping you navigate these, because you have some issues now. Did you have to go through publication review? I did. I did. Um, I had to do publication review through two agencies because DHS and then um, there's another agency that held my clearance while I was at the Capitol Police. So I had to submit those and they cleared it. Capitol Police um, got a hold of the manuscript through one of those agencies who sent it on to them. And um, they they didn't love it. They did not love the book. <laughs> Um, and so they wanted me to sign an attestation signed under the penalty of perjury that I would never publish this book and that I would never distribute, talk about, do anything with the manuscript. And I said, no, thank you. What? Well, hold on, hold, 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 back up. <laughs> they basically, after all this work, they want to say, hey, look, now we're going to review this, but you got to sign a document that says you're not going to publish the book. You're not going to say anything about the book. We're just going to bury the book. No, the two agencies that clear that I held my clearance, they cleared it and they didn't. Get, they I'm were fine with me the publication review. That's what I'm saying. That's yes. the PR, and they were fine with that. Yeah, Capitol Police was not fine with me publishing the book. I was open with them that I was writing a book. I don't know if they thought my book was going to be about like rainbows and butterflies, but um, they knew I was writing a book about them, and I don't think they were um, happy about how candid I was with with everything. They have no authority. I mean, what authority? They don't have any authority. A PRB, a publication review board can actually tell you, hey, look, you can publish, but you got to redact this or you got to do certain yeah. things, right? Yeah. What authority does the Capitol Police have to tell you you can't publish something? They don't. And the issue is, so they said that it was under 2 USC section 1979, which talks about like security information for the Capitol. The problem is, is that they were supposed to have written regulations as I understand it, that they should, were supposed to have written regulations to enforce that section of law. So as of now, there's no penalties for violating that. Um, and so there's no teeth in that. And um, it's different than the executive branch. I mean, if I was publishing this in the executive branch, there were definitely things that I would have to cut out. Um, but it's not. And so I said, well, thank you for the recommendations. Um, because they sent me after... I got the attorney and went, I had, I've, Mark Zaid has been my attorney since January 12th of 2021, which I discussed in the book. Um, but, you know, he, he talked to them. I resigned after they sent me their letter saying that they were going to refer me to the appropriate law enforcement agencies because of my book. Um, oh my gosh. 
Yeah, they were pretty threatening. They were very threatening. Um, so I did that, but then they gave me an 82 point list of things that they wanted, quote unquote, excised from the book. <laughs> and so one of the things I did, I went to son's book and I said, well, he has emails in his book. He describes the command center in this book. He does this and you didn't review his book and you didn't send him a cease and desist letter and you aren't threatening him with law enforcement action. So why are you doing it to me? And so, um, yeah, like some of the things I made, like minor changes, like they didn't want me to say the exact number of people that I hired um, to be analysts, why that was like sensitive to them. I don't know. So instead of saying the specific number, I said I hired many people, <laughs> things like that, little stuff like that I would change. Yeah. But um, the story that I recount about, you know, the Russian that they stopped on January 6th and um, a, a few other things that I was like, no, th those are going to stay in the book. You know, my response would have been, I would have sent them the clip out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail where John Cleese is on the top of the tower and goes, I wipe my nose at you, you English bottom droppers. I fork in your general direction. You know, that's my response to your think about my book. You know, and I didn't read anything classified in your book. Well, that's good. And they, and they did get cleared. And it, there wasn't there's just not much classified stuff like at the Capitol Police generally. So there there's nothing classified. Jeez. Well, <laughs> as we know, since it only took two people in the skiff and not much was going on, you know, during that <laughs> exactly. time, so. mm -hmm. Hey, well, look, well, first of all, congratulations on the book mm -hmm. club. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of work. Uh, and let's close this out by talking about that. Yeah. How long from beginning to end did it take you to get this to the point of where uh, you got it picked up and. Because there's people. Because I'm working on. Actually, I got my first book in right now. It's it's being reviewed. It's a thriller, but it's not. It's a it's a fiction. Um, but but there's there's people who say, "Well, I want to write a book." No, I want to publish a book. There's a difference. Anybody can write a book, but to get it published, there's a lot. You talk about scars, you know, and arrows. So, how long from beginning to end did it take you to get this whole process done to where you had pub day today? Or um, yesterday? So I started it in February of 2022. And then I got the book deal, I think, late 2022. Um, and then I had to turn it into the publisher um, earlier this year. And then publication day yesterday. Uh, not this year, last year, 2023. I forget we're in a new year. Um, so, and then publication day. Um, I will say I did not have a ghostwriter. I wrote it all myself. Um, and I did have someone help me with the proposal. Because if you are writing a book... Writing the proposal is harder than writing the book itself. Um, so someone did help me with the proposal, and she did write a first chapter for that. That first chapter is not the first chapter that's in the book now. There are pieces of what she wrote in that proposal that are that survived the book, but otherwise everything else in the book was written by me. Well, and in this day and age, too, I think that ought to be a disclaimer. It's like this book was not written by AI. It was not written by chat GPT. You know, no, no, only humans were involved in the making of this book. And that's what I want to say, yes. you know. Yes, yes. Well, outstanding. Yeah. Well, first of all, hey, look, um, politics aside, because people say it's political. We tried to navigate that in this discussion because I didn't want to go one way or the other. What we wanted to do was focus on the role, the responsibilities, the products, what people should have done with it. And I appreciate your professionalism on doing that. And look, it's no matter again, what side of the aisle you're on, it's never fun to go through something like that. Because, But the biggest thing is what lessons are we going to learn out of it? How do we make sure this does not happen again? Right. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the government, the American people, we got a short memory because all the stuff we should have done after Oklahoma City, 
all the stuff we should have done after 9-11, all the stuff we should. I mean, you can keep naming stuff. We still keep seem to be learning our lessons, but hopefully this will be one more thing to where, okay, we haven't learned all of our lessons, but we've learned a few more than we did last time. So I'm hoping that's what contributes to this discussion is that they will take some of this and they go, yeah, you got 10 things here. But, you know, two of these things we're actually going to get done. Th- that would, in my view, be a tremendous victory because normally they just go, ah, if you're the capital place, it's like we're not doing anything, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's unfortunate. So but hopefully some hopefully people read the book and um, well, tell us about take what I- give us the name and where we can find it. Sure. It's called Domestic Darkness. It's an insider's account of the January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. And you can find it wherever you buy books. Wherever books are sold from Amazon to Barnes and Noble to... Your local store. Your local store. Hey, by the way, that's the fun part, right? So one of the guys I'm working with, we actually, he was on one of our episodes, Ryan Steck. He works with guys like Jack Carr and Brad Taylor. Um, I'll go to, I'll go to a Barnes and Noble and I'll find his book and I'll turn, I'll flip it over to make sure it's there, you know, and I'll take a picture of it. Cause that's gotta be fun to walk by a bookstore and see your book in there. I know I haven't gone yet, but I should go. Well, you need to go back and report back to us. We expect a, we expect a report. Hey, a little, a little tidbit where the bookstores where you see, they have it on display, go to the manager, offer to autograph the book and they'll put a special sticker on it and they'll give it a more prominent place in the bookstore. We did that with. Oh, her. I will do that. And actually, you know, Amazon's headquarters is right down the street from me and they have in their headquarters, like a bunch of books. And I saw them a few months ago and I was like, are you going to put my book up there? And she's like, well, we usually just do bestsellers. I said, I live in this neighborhood. I said, you need to put my book up there. My and tax like, money okay, goes to building your <laughs> building and getting you all the breaks the here. Tax cuts that Arlington made. <laughs> Yes. So. HQ2 is what they call it, right? That's the Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I've been to the HQ1 out there in Seattle on their little dome and their biosphere and everything. You know, when you go to HQ1, which I don't walk, I don't suggest you walk around the streets of Seattle anymore unless you're armed and got Kevlar. But um, but you would go by there. They would hand out fresh fruit. You could get an apple, bananas, stuff like that. They would. We have bananas. bananas. And uh, I saw the banana person and I was like, you're just giving out bananas. Like, it was so weird to me. I was like, I don't understand what's going on here. I was like, yeah, <laughs> but they have bananas. I take a banana. Take a banana. All right. Well, hey, well, look, Julie, this is us saluting you. Thank you for serving our country. Thank you Thank so you. much. I really appreciate it. Well, and hopefully you enjoyed this. We enjoyed this too. Like I said, just it's, I did. It's the I process. Did. You know, it's the process of how you do this stuff. So, all right. Uh, again, goes goes check it out. Everybody go to Barnes Noble, go to Amazon, go to your local bookstore, just buy the damn book. And then maybe she'll autograph it for you. Find the one that's been autographed, you know? That's right. That's right. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. You don't go anywhere. You two hang there. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Uh, Again, we talk about folks, doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Um, the, the, the thing about this conversation is really to look at the process. What was in place? What wasn't in place? What improvements should have been made? Some of the recommendations. I, I know you liked some of them. A couple of them I don't exactly agree with, uh, but that's okay. That's why we're entitled to have opinions. But that's why we have discussions like this. We don't make it political. We just get procedural process. Tell us what was going on. But I, I found it very interesting about the lack of cooperation from certain federal agencies about sharing information and intelligence. Um, and the breakdown in communications that could have maybe not totally stopped it, but helped prevent maybe a lot of this from going on. You know, you would think we would have learned, uh, we being law enforcement, uh, after that little event in 2001 called 9-11, 
You yep. would have thought we would have learned after an incident that we've had the former Boston police commissioner on here called the Boston Marathon bombing. You would thought that somewhere along the line, we would realize the importance of sharing information amongst the agencies. But the sad truth is we continue to battle that same issue, isn't it? And that's what, that's what happened here. Um, you know, if you, if you, See what happened after the event and the, the things that uh, Julie did to try to implement change to make it a more productive intelligence function within the Capitol Police. You find out that she was right all along. So it's, uh, you know, <laughs> you think you're past this thing where you get around, and law, especially in law enforcement, get around the macho men and the women have no place here. They absolutely do. If they're doing the same job, yep. they deserve the same money, they deserve the same respect, and they deserve to be listened to. Yeah, and look, we're all on Team America here. That's the part that gets me. Look, we're all on Team America. Yeah, we got to quit dividing things based upon a political philosophy and start saying what's good for the country. But we digress. But if you want to hear more about that, though, we do talk about some of that on Patreon. So, uh, but and I'll get to that in a second. So, hey guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode. Go over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. You know, like I said, you can leave comments on Spotify. Let us know what you think about this. This is this is interesting because this was an insider view of what people were seeing and what they were doing in response to that. You know, and again, her book is on uh, Amazon. You can find it on Amazon.com. It's called Domestic Darkness, an insider's account of January 6th insurrection and the future of right-wing extremism. Um also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. we got the book listed there, one of our many books that we have there. Uh, also, follow us on that thing called social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go to Game of Crimes Fans, find it on Facebook, and our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, who rules with the iron fist with the velvet glove, may let you... Sorry, I tried to hit pause. I, <laughs> I must be allergic to something. Oh, my God. That's those cats running around your office there. Yeah, probably. Yeah, they run. They rule. They rule the world. Uh, and sorry about that, Sandy. I didn't mean to sneeze. I'm not allergic to you. Just uh, allergic to uh, the thought of not being let inside the most sacred of all kingdoms. That is our inner sanctum. Game of Crimes fans <laughs> on Facebook.com. I thought maybe I'll edit that out. Maybe I won't. Screw it. I'm just going to leave it. Just one of those go. days. But also, hey, if you want to find out more neat stuff, go to Patreon. Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. Like I said, we just had a really fun 911 episode. We've got several good things coming out. We've got the Narcometer. Uh, Murph may redeem himself. We'll see. We're getting some interesting stuff coming up on there. Uh, we've got You Can't Make This Shit Up, uh, Case of the Month. We've got some neat things there. Um, and, uh, you know, our Warden of the Throne, for, the user, for those of you who participate at our highest levels, we do an exclusive video just for you where we really get more animated, more personal about things. But there's only one way to find that. Patreon.com slash game of crimes well hey murph that brings us once again to the end the end of another great episode absolutely and you need to come back next time because we may be bringing back somebody you've heard from before to talk about some things that uh i was surprised i'd never heard of yeah and we're gonna see if we can't pronounce his last name correctly this time too yeah, well, I'm still good with Zach, but <laughs> <laughs> you just gave it away, Murph. <laughs> well, only for those who know. Only for those who know, and knowing is half the battle. Hey, well, guys, well, and if you know, then you know that this is the end, and you know that we say thank you once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all—the game of crimes. Mm-hmm.